chapter 24, so we will finish out Matthew 24 today. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, and reading through the end. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine a scenario. Uh, one day, the postman delivers a letter to your door. Uh, he has to deliver it personally because it was sent by certified mail, and therefore you have to sign for it to ensure that you received it. Uh, and as you look at the letter, there's your name handwritten on the envelope, but there's no sender name and no return address. And so as you're thinking about it, you're thinking, who in the world could this be from? And then as you open the envelope, you find a letter that, to your surprise, reads like this. Dear Sir or Madam, I'm writing to inform you that on December 15th at exactly 11 p.m. in the evening, my associates and I will attempt to rob your house. Our plan is to enter through the screened-in porch at the back of the house before picking the lock on the patio door. However, before we attempt to burglarize your home, we've arranged several signs to ensure that you will be aware of our arrival. First, we will honk 
as we pull into your driveway. And then we'll be sure to come by the front door and rattle the handle a few times. Finally, we will shine our flashlights in your bedroom windows as we make our way to break in to the back of the house. Also, we're sending you this advance warning via certified mail just to ensure its delivery. Looking forward to robbing you, signed, A Thief in the Night. I trust I do not need to explain the absurdity of such a letter. It would be a terrible thief who would telegraph his movements in such a way that the homeowners were ready for his coming and could make preparations. The thief does just the opposite. He doesn't telegraph his movements. He cloaks them in the cover of darkness. He doesn't reveal his plans. He conceals his plans. He hides them. He hopes to catch the homeowners absent or unawares. Jesus says in verse 43, Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. As we come to verse 36 today, we are really coming to the second subject in this Olivet Discourse. You'll remember that the disciples asked back in verse 3, When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Uh, But what they believed to be one event, Jesus explains, will actually come in stages. Uh, There would be first the end of the temple and Israel as God's covenant people, and then only later would Christ come at the end of the age. The end of Jerusalem with its temple would be preceded by signs and a warning signal to flee. But it would come upon that generation who were then living. That generation would see Jesus' prophecy that all these stones will be thrown down and not one will be left. But the end of the age, Jesus says, will be preceded by no signs. There will be no sign of Christ's coming. It will come without warning. It will come like a thief in the night, and concerning that day and hour, no one will know. And it has been my assertion as we've worked through this passage that those two ends, the end of Jerusalem on the one hand and the end of the world on the other, are made very clear by the very structure of the passage. The end of Jerusalem is described all the way through verse 35, bookended by those words, all these things will come upon this generation. But you'll notice that today, as we pick up in verse 36, there's a very clear shift, where Jesus now says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. What day is in view here? Well, according to verse 3, it is the day of his coming and of the end of the age. That is the day that Jesus is now referring to. In fact, beginning with verse 36, there's a very clear shift in the emphasis from concerning the fall 
uh, and destruction of Jerusalem to now the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Greek word that is used here, it's a word that you may have heard of before. It's the word parousia. It's the word that that the, the New Testament uses repeatedly to speak of the second coming of Christ. In the whole first 35 verses... Uh, of chapter 24, that word was only used once. And even then, it was used of the second coming. You remember, Jesus was warning them as things were getting bad in Jerusalem and people would be looking for a deliverer. Jesus warned them and said, don't be led astray by those who would say, look, the Christ is here or he's there. Look, he's there in the wilderness or look, he's here in an inner room. Uh, Jesus says, I'm not going to come that way. When I come... It will be like lightning that flashes from the east to the west. It will be sudden, and it will be unexpected. But now, in verse 36, the coming of Christ on this ultimate day is the whole emphasis. And let me try to help you feel that. Verse 37 For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 39. Like the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 42. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 43. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... Verse 44, therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect. Seven times Jesus repeats the language of his coming so that we don't miss the point. So what might we say about this day? It's the day of Christ's coming. And what does the Bible teach us about this coming day? Well, I think there's at least three things that we should learn and take heed of in this passage. And the first thing is this, that Jesus teaches us that this will be an ultimate day. As Jesus teaches that this coming in glory will put an end to history. Secondly, we should see that this will be an unknown day. As Jesus tells us that no one except the Father alone knows when this day will come. Uh, It's an ultimate day and it's an unknown day. But also, it's an unexpected day. Jesus teaches us not only that we do not know the day, but that we cannot expect when it will happen. It will come as a surprise. And so as we begin to consider this ultimate day then, we need to understand that when Jesus uses this language of that day, Jesus is really tapping into familiar eschatological expectations. Uh, That day is shorthand in the Bible 
for the Old Testament concept of the day of the Lord when the Messiah would come in blessing and in judgment. And that language, that day, is used throughout the New Testament to speak of that second coming. And let me just give you a few uh, references to help you see that. Uh, We've already seen this, actually, in Matthew's gospel itself. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The disciples were not confused about which day Jesus was talking about. They had an expectation of what that day would be. Again, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus will say, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In that day, the kingdom will be consummated. And it's not just Matthew. This is the consistent testimony of all the New Testament writers. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, he speaks of that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Uh, And again, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of the coming of Christ and he says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So what does the Bible teach about that day when Christ comes. What should we expect? What will happen when Jesus returns? Uh, and I, I, I want to just stray from the Gospel of Matthew a little bit to help answer that question. I want to bring in just some of the other biblical data that helps us reflect on what that day will be like. Uh, First, that day will be a day of resurrection. The resurrection of the just and the unjust, we confess this. uh, Every time we confess the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. But Jesus tells us very clearly in John chapter 5 that an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of life. Of judgment. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 uh, is particularly helpful because it tells us that when the Lord himself descends from heaven with the cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, then the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so all those who have died in Christ will be raised. And then... We who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Uh, in the dispensational scheme, this is the verse that's used to, uh, to prove the idea of the rapture, right? That there is going to be a rapture before a seven-year tribulation, uh, that there's going to be this intrusionary sort of coming of Christ. But it's not the case. 
the rapture, that catching up occurs on that final day, on the resurrection of the just and the unjust. We will be caught up. And that, that is what Jesus seems to be talking about in verses 40 through 41 of our passage when he says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Uh, second, the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes, he is going to sit as the judge of the world. In Matthew 25, 31, we are told that the Son of Man, when He comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In Acts, as Paul is preaching in Acts 17, he he tells us, that God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has appointed, and He's given proof of this by raising Him from the dead. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, when He comes from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Listen, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. It is when He comes, it is on that day that He will judge the world in righteousness That seems to be what Jesus is referring to in verses 50 through 51 of our passage when he says, The master of the servant will come on a day that he does not expect, and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That day will be a day of resurrection, it will be a day of judgment, and finally, it will be a day that puts an end to all of human history and usher in eternity. Think of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 again, where after it speaks of us being caught up to meet Him in the air, Paul then says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The period of eternity, the period of Always being with the Lord begins when Jesus appears. And finally, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Jesus is the firstfruits of the resurrection. You need to think of the resurrection as one grand and glorious harvest of people. And Jesus is the firstfruits. And if Jesus, the first fruits, is raised from the dead, then the whole harvest will be raised. Jesus, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, the resurrection, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That day when Christ returns is the ultimate day. 
It is the end day. It's the day of resurrection. It's the day of judgment. It is the day that Christ puts an end to this present evil age, and he ushers in that eternal state of glory wherein we will be forever with the Lord. It's not only an ultimate day. Jesus says very clearly that it's an unknown day. In verses 36 through 42, this unknown character of the day is highlighted. Uh, Beginning, perhaps, with the most startling statement of all in verse 36 itself. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Who knows? No one knows. Not William Miller, the father of the Adventists. Not Hal Lindsey, the great, pl- the, the great late planet Earth. Not Edgar Wisenant, 80 re- 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Not Harold Camping. Not Jack Van Empey. And not you. And not me. Not even the angels of heaven. Nor the sun. Scratch your head on that a little bit. If this information has not been revealed even to the angels of heaven who surround the very throne of God... Why should we think we will know? When the whole point is that you will not know. It's an unknown day and an unknown hour. Not even the sun. That may strike us as the most startling of all. And you may look at your footnote and you may see that some manuscripts omit the sun here. That doesn't get you off the hook because... It's included in Mark's gospel. So whether it's original here or not, it's biblical. Imagine that, that the the one who was very God of very God, two whole complete natures without separation or confusion, in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, did not know the day or the hour. While he certainly knew it according to his divine nature, it seems this was hidden from his human consciousness. And so if the man Christ Jesus did not know, is it not the height of folly to presume that we will figure it out? I don't want any books coming out of Redemption OPC predicting the date of the return of Christ. I will not endorse it. I might write a critical review. No, it's going to be like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were just going about life as usual, their ordinary lives. 
They had a warning from Noah's preaching, but otherwise it was life as usual. And then suddenly, the flood. The day that Noah enters the ark, they were unaware. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And to emphasize the ordinary, Jesus says, two men will be in a field. They'll be going about their ordinary business. They'll be working, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The point is really very simple. We don't know. Which brings us to our final point. Because not only is it an ultimate day and an unknown day, it's more than an unknown day. It's an unexpected day. If unknown conveys the sense that it is hidden, that it's a secret, unexpected conveys the sense that it will be surprising. And you see that in these last uh, two parables that Jesus gives us here at the end. The first, when he says that it's going to come like a thief in the night. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. If there is a shift in emphasis between what is unknown and what is unexpected, it seems to be on the heightened call for vigilance to be ready at all times, because you don't know. If that thief actually sent you that letter, dear sir or madam, what would you do? He sent it certified mail. Well, you would certainly prepare. You would probably call the police, or at least Isaac Mink. (laughs) Somebody that you know will be there to stop this intrusion. Jesus says, since you don't know when the thief is coming, you must be ready all the time. You must be always ready because you don't know. It will be unexpected. The second parable is like the first, only here, in this parable, Jesus illustrates his call for readiness through the figure of a master who entrusts the management of his affairs to a servant that goes on a journey. And uh, then Jesus describes not only the difference between how a faithful and a wise servant might ask versus how a foolish servant might act, but he describes how the master will respond to these servants when he returns. On the one hand, a faithful and wise servant will do what? He'll be dutiful. He'll just go about all of his ordinary duties. He does everything as he ever did, just as if the master were still present, just as if the master were still there observing. He's providing for the household at the proper time. And so Jesus says, consequently, when the master comes and he he finds his servant being a faithful steward, he'll reward him by honoring him and setting, setting him over all of his possessions. But on the other hand, 
A wicked servant might say this, my master is delayed. And in the master's absence, his behavior begins to deteriorate. He beats his fellow servants. He eats and drinks with drunkards. Uh, He says in his heart, since my master is delayed, I can just do whatever I want. I can just, I can have the run of the place. I have plenty of time after all. I can just, you know, quickly get things in order before he comes back. It reminds me of the way that Peter uh, speaks of the coming of Christ in 2 Peter 3. Peter tells us that scoffers are going to come in the last day, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And just as an aside here, since we're talking about eschatological things, when Peter speaks of the last days, scoffers coming in the last days, he means these days. He's not thinking of some future days, right, leading up to a crisis event. He's thinking of these days that you are in right now. These are the last days. The Bible makes it very clear that the last days refer to all the days between the ascension and glorification of the Son of Man and the Son of Man coming again on the clouds. Those are the last days. Those last days, Peter says, quoting Joel at Pentecost, right? This is just right after Christ has died and been raised. And he says, in these last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. You're in it. And Peter says, during these last days, scoffers are going to come. And what are they going to say? Where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says the reason they're scoffing and they're following their own sinful desires is precisely because they say, you keep telling us Jesus is coming. Where is he? If that was being said in Peter's day, how much more so now? After all, it's been 2,000 years, and everything just keeps on going, as it always has. People are eating and drinking, being given in marriage, but they forget what Peter says. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. A thousand years is a long time. It's 2022. Think 1022. What was life like in 1022? That's 30 years before the Eastern and Western churches split. Life would have looked very different in many ways. But in a lot of ways, they would have looked exactly the same. People would have been eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, just as they are now and just as they were way back in the days of Noah. A thousand years seems like a long time to us but it is a moment, it is a single day to the one who stands outside and above time. 
Uh, Terry Johnson has preached several sermons on this, which are very useful. And he, he says, the day is as a thousand years, we're in day two. Will it be seven days? Will it be ten days? Our eschatological horizon needs to broaden. But even if it is, even if it's that long before our Lord comes, Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. He is patient. If He delays... It is because He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, Peter says, like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. When the Master returns, the works of the servants will be exposed." Jesus says the master will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know. And what will he find? He'll find that this servant has indulged himself and has acted wickedly and consequently he will... It's graphic language. He'll cut him in pieces. I looked this up because I was thinking, is this a reference to whipping? Because the... You know, the, the servant beats the other servants, and I was, I was wondering if this might have some reference to sort of the tearing of the flesh, cutting the flesh in pieces, but no. It, it's, a, it's a term that refers to dismemberment. I'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it could be that that's an expression of hyperbole. Uh, that's what Johnson thinks. He thinks it's akin to our, uh, our expression, heads will roll, right? We don't literally mean bring in the guillotine, Bob off with his head. No, we mean there's going to be severe consequences. It could be hyperbole. It could also be an actual graphic description with a distinction between the sort of horrific physical torment of, of death followed by the even worse eternal torment of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is is the way that Jesus has in Matthew's gospel described hell, isn't it? In either respect, I think the point is, is fairly simple, that there is a punishment in view of utmost severity. And you see, this final parable then only presses home the point about vigilance and the need to be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Well, as we reflect upon this ultimate day, how should we think about it? I think Peter, as he reflects on it in 2 Peter chapter 3, I think he helps us to think about how we should live in light of this day. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That sums it up beautifully. Peter basically is repeating Jesus, we need to be ready. And what does that readiness look like? Well, let me help you think through that from just sort of thinking about all of the various scriptures we've talked about today. First and foremost, readiness looks like being prepared to meet your maker and judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only safe way to meet him is through faith in him. You'll remember that at the beginning of this Olivet Discourse, Jesus said to Jerusalem, how I long to gather you up as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That picture of refuge and of safety, but you were not willing. The only way to be safe in that day of judgment is to look in faith to Jesus Christ. Paul said in, in that passage in 1 Thessalonians that when Jesus comes, he is, he is coming to judge very specifically those who have not obeyed the gospel. How do you obey the gospel? It is through faith, by trusting in the message of good news that is proclaimed in the gospel. And if you are trusting in Christ, beloved, beloved then you are, in fact, prepared to meet him. And here's the marvelous thing. That the very one who is your judge in that day bears the marks of the cross. He bears the wounds which he bore in your place. The marks which speak of all that wrath of God that he endured. When he comes on that day, your appeal is not to yourself, but to him. To what he has done. To the gospel And if you do not know Christ, if you're here and and you, you know in your heart that you are not right with God, you are not prepared to meet Him on that day, do not scoff. And do not delay. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them. Turn to Christ. He's merciful and patient. If He is slow in coming, He is slow in coming For you, to give you opportunity. I think readiness also looks like, as Peter says, living a life of holiness and godliness while we wait. We're to be like those wise and faithful servants. The fact that everything is going to be dissolved does not mean that we should just neglect our responsibilities because the end is near. Not at all. We should be busy in faithful stewardship of the gifts and graces that God has given us. After all, He's working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. We should be faithful in the ordinary things, in our various callings and careers, in our marriages, in our mothering and our fathering, and our being students and teachers, and whatever it is that we do. I remember this this sort of funny anecdote that Dr. Godfrey would tell about John Calvin. John Calvin was very weak and nearing death. It was very clear. And yet from his deathbed, he was still dictating his sermons. 
And his caregivers and his fellow ministers urged him to rest from his labors. You know how Calvin responded? Would you have the Lord return and find me idle? I don't think anyone would ever accuse John Calvin of being idle. When you consider his workload in Geneva, the volumes of material that he produced in his life. Nevertheless, even in death, the return of Christ, his coming, the coming of his master, was motivating him to be a more faithful servant. And finally, I think readiness looks like longing. Peter says we not only wait for that day, we hasten it. We long for it to come. We don't fear that day. The author of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus comes, He's not coming to deal with our sins again. He's already dealt with our sins. He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. How did Paul put it? Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I can't think of a better way to close this sermon out than just by encouraging you with these words. Jesus is coming. Your Savior. The one who loved you and sought you and lived for you and died for you and justified you and adopted you and is sanctifying you and walks with you through every struggle and through every trial of life. The one who has been your friend. The one who has never failed you. He's coming for you. He's coming to save you who are eagerly waiting for him. And so you will always be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for your coming. As Peter also says, we should set all of our hopes on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, we hope in so many things in this world. We find security and confidence in things that cannot give us security. But Lord, you and your words never pass away. And your promise is good. And we can rely on that promise that you will come again and you will raise the dead as surely as you have been raised from the dead and are seated at the right hand of your Father in heaven. So you will raise the dead. You will call men and women and children out of their tombs and bring them to life. Some unto eternal life and some unto eternal judgment. That day will be not only a day of resurrection, but of judgment. But most gloriously, it will be the end. It will be the end of all of our lives of sin and misery, of suffering. It will be the day when you wipe every tear from our eyes. Sin and sorrow and sickness will be no more. And we will be forever with you, glorified, made fit for that heavenly, eternal existence. And so, Lord, would you make us ever ready 
Would you so fill our hearts with a sense of your presence that we might say like Calvin, would you have the Lord return and find me idle? But Lord, let us be busy about all of the things that you have put before us to do and to be faithful in all of our tasks, to glorify you, and to know that it is not us, but it is you who are working in us to do according to your good pleasure so that in the end, all glory and honor resound to you alone. Even so, Lord, come quickly, we pray. Amen. Amen. Wonderful day, right? Praise the Lord. And now we get to commune together as well, as those who have been made members of the family of Jesus Christ, uh, who have his name put upon us, and, and so have a right and title to all those benefits that belong to the children of God. We come to this family meal and we celebrate together. Uh, and this meal speaks not only of our reconciliation with God and our fellowship that we have with Him and communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It also speaks of the communion that we have with one another and the fellowship that we have with one another. And so as we participate in this meal, we participate together as one body, as those who are the redeemed. This is one great big family table. And of course, just as baptism is a sign So is the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Uh, Here, the sign is even maybe more graphic uh, because the bread represents the body, the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as it comes to you today, it comes to you broken and it comes to you torn into pieces. The wine, as it comes to you, it comes to you poured out. It comes to you shed, uh, reminding us that the body and blood of our Lord was, what the, was, was the price that was necessary to pay for our sins. But it also is something we eat. It's something we feed upon. It's something that nourishes us. Just as physical bread and wine nourish us and strengthen us, so this bread and wine nourishes us and strengthens us spiritually until that day returns that day, Jesus says, when I will drink this cup anew with you in the kingdom. We long for that day, but even now God gives us the Lord's day, which is like a little picture of that final day. God is here in blessing and in judgment. Emmanuel is present with us, and it is Jesus who hands out this meal to you. And so there comes a warning then as well, doesn't there? Because this meal represents judgment, and it represents the judgment that will come to all those who are outside of Christ, who are not prepared to meet him. It it comes to those foolish servants. And if you know in your heart that you're a foolish servant, and you know that you're not right with God, then as these elements come, let me just encourage you to let them pass you by because they do not yet belong to you. But God is patient, and he's merciful, not wishing that any should perish. And so if you find in your heart the Lord working and calling you to himself, 
then just come and speak with me. There's nothing I would rather speak to you about than what it means to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, who've been baptized into his name, who love him and long for his appearing, for you, this meal should comfort you. This meal should make you long for heaven. Uh, This meal should make you anticipate that final day. Amen. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come now approaching your table, we come with reverence and we come with awe. Uh, We marvel that we are even able to come and have a seat at this table, that we are called your, your sons and your daughters, that we are named by you and have a right and title uh, to all of the benefits of belonging to you, of being the children of God and inheritors of that heavenly kingdom, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that even as we come now in faith, believing that your promise is good, Lord, we pray that you would feed us, that you would nurture our faith. Our faith is weak. Our faith needs to be strengthened. And we pray and ask that even through this meal, as as we taste and see that you are good, we pray that you would strengthen faith and that you would make us more and more to trust you, to love you, to long for your appearance, to live lives of godliness and holiness in this present evil age. Lord, we long for that new heavens and new earth. But Lord, we thank you that you are with us all of the days in this earth. And we say it in Jesus' name, amen.